Welcome to our first Lion Trust Global Fixed Income podcast. I'm Simon Hildry and with me is Phil Milburn, one of the three fund managers on the GFI team. Phil will give us his insights and perspectives on economics, bond markets and anything else that takes his fancy. Hello, Phil. Hi, Simon. Let me start, Phil, by asking you about the Federal Reserve. Recently, we've had the latest Fed meeting. We've had a speech by Jerome Powell. What impact has this had on your view of US interest rates? At their meeting last week on January the 30th, the Fed has made a massive change, as anybody listening to this call, I'm sure, will be aware. One of the key changes they really made was in their narrative around their interest rate cycle, and they have moved from one of further gradual increases to one of being patient. And the market has very much interpreted this as a capitulation to weak equity and general other risk markets over the fourth quarter of 2018. Now, as I see it, Powell is not a PhD type, he's very much a pragmatist. And when he says he is now data dependent, he actually means it. So there is undoubtedly a higher hurdle to further rate rises. The market has now completely priced rate rises out um, and said that actually we've reached peak rates in the States and there will be no more rate rises. And do you agree with this more patient approach? I agree with the bit of that being patient, but I still think there are going to be further rate rises in the States. And now looking at Jerome J. Powell, as he likes to be called, um, my ornithologist friends tell me that the J is a small to medium sized bird and because it's so sociable, it mimics other birds. I think in this case, Jay Powell is very much mimicking a dove, but doesn't really mean it. He's just reacting to the data. And let's examine that data to say why I don't think rates have actually peaked yet in the States. We're seeing very strong employment data. Yes, the non-farm payrolls are noisy, but if you look at the three-month average, um, you have 241,000 average monthly jobs created over the last three months. And the 12 month moving average now is 222,000. This is way above the amount of job creation needed for trend growth. And this is leading to inevitable wage inflation as the Phillips curve kicks in. And we're seeing 3.2% wage inflation in the States. And as far as I'm concerned, if we're to get up to 3.5% wage inflation, this will start to give Fed members a nosebleed. Wage inflation, I see, is the classic transmission mechanism from broad inflation to generalized inflation, as opposed to, say, commodity prices, which just substitute inflation and take share out of the consumer's wallet. Now, there has been soft patch in economic data. This has been driven by CapEx, but provided consumption, which represents 70% of US GDP, remains strong, and with so much hiring going on and wage inflation, then consumption's pretty much a given in the States, then ultimately I see this as a soft patch. Data will start to strengthen, um, and ultimately the Fed will go back to what they were saying in December of we'll actually see two further rate rises this year. So is wage inflation the key measure to watch, and is 3.5% the key catalyst? In my opinion, definitely yes. Um, 3.5% is partly based on the fact that in this cycle, productivity growth has been very slow. Um, And so ultimately, as wages go up, this will put pressure on corporate margins, um, which could lead to a further CapEx fall. Um, So with labour participation increasing, 
um, and unemployment falling, excluding the participation and the temporary federal shutdown, then you can see a further and further pressure. Or to put it another way, I see the Phillips curve as a curve rather than a straight line. And we've had the best part of 10 years of very little wage inflation. It shouldn't come as a surprise that now the labour markets are tight, that wage inflation can drift up towards that nosebleed level. Did anything else interesting come out of the meeting or the speech, Phil? So very little came out of the speech last night with uh, Powell actually saying the US economy is in a good place, um, which is uh, helpful, but not particularly illuminating. However, one of the more technical parts from the 30th of January meeting is the Fed have adjusted their rhetoric around their balance sheet reduction, the what is known as quantitative tightening or QT. They've moved from, and I quote, a level targeted necessary to implement monetary policy efficiently and effectively, which really meant that one is, that the market was assuming they would continue tightening and reducing their balance sheet until such time as all excess reserves were out of the system. And they've now changed that to there will be some, inverted commas, excess reserves in the financial system. Exactly how many is very hard to ascertain, and we're still awaiting some form of Fed working paper on this. But the assumption has to be from a high point of roughly four and a half trillion size dollar balance sheet, rather than going all the way down to two and a half trillion, the Fed will stop somewhere in the three to three and a half trillion range. Um, and that is when the monetary tightening will stop. That news, probably even more than the rate rise side or lack of rate rise side, is very supportive for risk assets. Is this also inflationary potentially? Uh, yes, or certainly it's going to lead to less risk of a dollar funding crisis um, and leave banks with those excess reserves which upon which they can lend. Um, and so it's less likely to lead to a cyclical credit crunch, not comparable to the 0709 credit crunch, but with every cycle you do see a little credit crunch, this will leave the financial system still awash with liquidity. Given this, and that your views that rate rises may be greater than expected. How are you playing this in your strategic bond funds? The first and most obvious thing to say is that we are staying underweight the rates beta, rates exposure, or in fixed income parlance, we continue to run with low duration exposure um, as at the end of January in the two to two and a half years underlying range compared to our average or our benchmark average of four and a half years and the passive benchmark extension to seven years. We still think rates are expensive. Within this, we still prefer the US market to bonds and, and UK gilts because at least the US is much further through the rate rising cycle and is exhibiting positive real yields. On a slightly more geeky side and generating alpha, we like Treasury inflation protected securities, and they represent about a third of the current duration of the fund. We think the real yields offered by them and the inflation break-evens at roughly 1.8% for 10-year, with that well below the Fed's 2% and the Fed's actions being inflationary, we think that's some cheap protection for the fund. And another way of generating inflation protection is we've put on a trade called a curve steepener. Don't get a nosebleed about that. All that means is that we are 
buying some shorter dated bonds and selling some longer dated bonds with the shorter dated bonds anchored towards the Fed currently on pause and the longer dated bonds inflect, uh, reflecting the greater inflation risk that this has generated. Finally, with the strong risk rally that we've seen in January and the first week of February, we have taken profit in some of the credit positions, reduced high yield from 30% to a little below 20% in the strategic bond funds, and taken profit on some of the investment grade that we're buying in December and January. So overall, we think it's a good time to still be defensive on interest rates, but there's still a lot of money to be made in the market from generating alpha, from opposing Fed's actions, and from generally looking for the market inefficiencies. We've seen some weak economic figures from Europe recently. Does this have any impact on your thinking? It does, yes. We believe that um, the ECB would love to raise rates, but in the meantime, they need to see a recovery in economic activity. And Europe has been very vulnerable to the global trade war talks and talks about tariffs as well. However, that Europe has had some exceptional factors as well, such as, and this might sound trite, but it's true, low water levels on the Rhine in impacting German production levels and the new emissions tests for cars in Europe, again, impacting production. Undoubtedly, Italy's weak, but Germany, we think, should rebound fairly strongly. One of the catalysts for Europe will be the ECB liking, uh, likely to introduce a third round of cheap funding for banks, possibly with a bone thrown to Northern Europe uh, with some form of tightening the corridor of lending around it. Uh, but ultimately, we think Europe will bounce back, admittedly at a lower level, and that bonds with a guaranteed negative real return for the next 10 years are a dreadful investment, and we'd much rather invest our hard-earned uh, clients' money in the US market than in the European market, which is fundamentally expensive. And is there anything politically that you're especially looking at? Trump, trade wars, Brexit? For me, the there's ongoing, as you said, Trump and his wall. This isn't the big argument yet in the States. Um, the next federal shutdown or partial shutdown is due to start again on the 15th of February. Um, the Democrats and Republicans might be able to come to a compromise regarding greater security. The bigger arguments are likely to start in the summer. Um, and my best estimate is August, looking at the run rate, when the Fed, sorry, when the US, um, due to their fiscal deficit, is likely to start hitting on their debt ceiling again. And the Democrats will be able to score huge points against Trump um, if they choose to by refusing to sign off on the debt ceiling being raised, just as the Republicans did with Obama, and scoring political points that way. So I see this and um, Trump versus Democrats, particularly Nancy Pelosi, argument as the warm-up to the big one in the summer. Brexit continues to be a mess, but the market's perception is that the UK is veering towards a softer Brexit and there remains great uncertainty ahead of March the 29th. But there is one thing for certain, the UK is not ready for a no deal crashing out Brexit on March the 29th. The infrastructure isn't there. 
the government knows this and it's a bluff so we'll either have an extension or some form of compromise deal that takes another six to 12 months before the actual exit and then in politics in europe we've seen the populists rising but now the populists are failing to deliver so the pro-european sentiment has actually started to increase again according to all polls that we see um, so existential risk is low in europe but we are approaching the MEP elections in May, which could have a slightly more split European Parliament. Thank you, Phil. No doubt we'll be returning to some of these topics in future podcasts. And thank you to everybody for listening. We will welcome any feedback and questions that you have. And we look forward to welcoming you to our next GFI podcast.